Hello, this is Luciano Joshua Gonzalez Vega of the Benito Juarez Experience. In today's episode, we are going to explore the separation of church and state, the Johnson Amendment, and how these things intersect and affect people independent of their religious backgrounds in the United States. Hello, this is Luciano Gonzalez. And Juan Rivera. And we are the co-hosts of the Benito Juarez Experience. For today's topic, we're going to be having a in-depth conversation about a somewhat obscure piece of legislation, an amendment to the tax code, named the Johnson Amendment. The reason we've decided to talk about this today is because the Johnson Amendment was one of President Donald Trump's campaign promises to the evangelical community. Not the actual amendment, but rather to get it repealed. The purpose of today's conversation is to, if not introduce people to the Johnson Amendment, clarify what it is and what getting rid of it would actually do in addition to whether or not it is a bipartisan issue and the opinion of the people of the United States on this topic. So the Johnson Amendment is a amendment named after Senator Lyndon B. Johnson in 1954. And what it did was it changed part of the tax code to kind of limit the political activity of certain types of tax-exempt organizations. Some of the organizations, the main organization that was affected, the main type of organization, were the churches. What it did was it limited the amount, the amount of time that churches could spend um, driving policy issues, and it prohibited the ability of churches to directly endorse or antagonize specific political candidates. During the course of the 2016 presidential election, this was a primary conversational talking point that Donald Trump had when he was engaging with the evangelical community. Certain factions in the evangelical community felt that the Johnson Amendment was an affront to their ability to speak their mind. And there is a lot of debate both before now and in the modern era about the Johnson Amendment because there's an extent to which it could be seen as them being right when they said it limited their ability to engage in politics, which they argued was an affront on their ability to speak freely. And it's important that we listen to their arguments and that we understand them and that we not write them off. But it's also important that we actually understand what the Johnson Amendment does and what it doesn't do. So what do you think, Dr. Navarro-Rivera? Does this infringe on their ability to speak freely? Uh, depends on how freely you want to speak. I, I, I think one of the interesting aspects is that even as Donald Trump making a major campaign issue, this has been going on for a few years, uh, particularly among evangelical circles and particularly in white evangelical circles. Uh, and they have several leaders in, in this movement have had what they call it is, I, I believe, Freedom Sunday, in which mm-hmm. they actually purposely and, uh, violate the rules, you know, this is a particular set of rules uh, to talk about politics freely. One of the interesting aspects of that is 
to, to what extent it is a popular opinion among this particular group of evangelicals how it's how much spread it is among other religious groups and how much actual political will there is to to try to change or, or to repeal this particular piece of legislation, the Johnson Amendment, because the the implications is not or the ramifications of getting rid of it is not just about you know the ability of churches of endorsing and uh, opposing candidates, which to some extent they have you know they can do that in coded language. I remember in two thousand and four I was with some friends and they were going to mass and it was really cold outside. It was a winter day. So I said, you know, I'm just going to hang out with them at the church, at the Catholic church. Uh, and I remember the priest talking about the value of life and talking about that particular election. This is like getting close to the 2004 election. So it may have been a cold fall day, not necessarily a winter day, which was a specific language that was talking but not talking about Senator John Kerry, who was the presidential nominee that year and certainly not so coded, coded language in support of George W. Bush. So there have been ways in which organizations and, and churches have been able to talk about issues, which is not as far as I know prohibited, right? It's about candidates, uh, in, in part politicking about candidates, not necessarily about issues, which is why you know, many churches are, are very involved in issues like you know, pro-life, or pro-choice, or LGBT rights, and the, and, 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 and the like. Uh, but the changes would, a major change in, in a repeal of this kind of law would, would have serious ramifications in the way in which candidates could raise money and use churches to funnel that. If you are a cynical individual, this is undoubtedly one of the reasons why people would look at this issue with somewhat of a side eye. They would kind of glare at this because people on both sides of this issue undoubtedly understand that one of the things churches cannot do is they cannot contribute funds to candidates or political committees, and churches are tax-exempt. If the Johnson Amendment is changed completely, if it's thrown out the window, churches could theoretically raise funds and give them to politicians and to political, um, political committees, and that is dangerous because churches are obviously tax exempt. So they could raise money and they could raise more money in manners that are far more effective and efficient than other nonprofit organizations. Additionally, one of the issues that's going on here is that many individuals are under the impression that churches cannot do anything political. And anyone who's done research on this topic, as, you, as you've mentioned before, understands that that's not the case. There is plenty of political activity that churches and pastors can engage in. Because the Johnson Amendment, when it was drafted, 
was not intended to be a partisan policy. It was intended to be something that people could agree on. It was intended to draw reasonable limits and not infringe on what at the time was seen as the free speech abilities of both churches and pastors. And it's important that we mention this because lots of people, we don't necessarily have an audience that's going to be filled with believers, but we want anyone who listens to us to understand that this is a nuanced topic. And the way that Donald Trump and evangelicals such as the pulpit freedom movement and specific individuals such as, I think, Ted Cruz and Joshua Firstein, a famous internet pastor, the ways that they've talked about this makes it sound far more draconian than it actually is. Another really important topic to bring up is the fact that if a church violates the Johnson Amendment, they don't face a serious punishment. They simply run the risk of losing their tax-exempt status. This is understandably a big deal, I don't want to minimize this. Churches usually don't raise a lot of money, but this is still not a super serious thing. Pastors who break this rule are not thrown in jail. They're not persecuted. The only way that they're treated differently from other pastors is that their churches are investigated, and if it's found that they are violating the Johnson Amendment, they could theoretically have to pay back taxes. You know, this, this is a, a good point that you're getting here, and it's the fact that even those of us who are involved in, in, in the secular movement and are very attuned with the news, uh, particularly of what religious figures are doing politically, may have sometimes a very skewed view of that, you know, Churches are major political organizations, but the fact is that the, the number of religious organizations and, and, and clergy that is actually involved in politics, you know, in, in a large scale is actually very small. Uh, for the most part, most churches either do their, you know, kind of Sunday service or, or, or you know, I mean, if they're Christian, uh, or they you know, they, they basically perform their, you know, the ceremonies and, and, and the such, and not, not many are actually places where people are hearing about politics, nor care about hear about, hear, to hear about that. Uh, in, in many ways, the church is a safe space for a lot of people to avoid politics. Uh, and so, you know, this is something that we often lose perspective and, and the fact that a lot of these movements to reveal the gentleman is basically uh, driven by a very specific and small group uh, that basically in no way represents the vast majority of the clergy or, or religious figures in the country. Exactly. It's it's very important that more people in our side understand that people don't want to hear about politics in church. Like, we, we have this idea, at least some of us do, that there are a lot of conservative believers, and this is true, but when they go to church, I was a believer for a good chunk of my life. I am 22, I'm about halfway to being 23. I was a believer up until I was 19. 
I was raised in Latin America. I got to see lots of different churches. Churches aren't often partisan places. In fact, lots of believers ought to be concerned about this, and they are. Studies have shown that people on both sides of the issue, on, both, on believers and non-believers, people agree that this is a non-partisan issue, that this should not be changed. There was a national poll that was conducted from March 6th to March 8th by Target Point Consulting that asked 800 registered voters if they wanted to keep the current rules. And the vast majority of them, 66% of Donald Trump voters and 78% of Hillary Clinton voters, said that it should be kept. People don't want to be exposed to politics when they're in church. But more importantly than that, lots of people understand that if these rules are changed, politicians would start pandering to their churches even more than they already do. It's important that we not get this idea that the Democrats are a super secular group. They're not. Lots of Democratic politicians have activities in churches and undoubtedly pander to Christian sentiments, but people don't want their churches to become a political battleground, and that's something that I agree with. I don't want to see people's places of worship turned into places where politicians do crass maneuvers just to gain votes. It's disrespectful to the beliefs, it's disrespectful to believers, and it excludes lots of people who are non-believers and who aren't believers in traditional religions, such as Christianity or Judaism. Absolutely. And in going, going furthermore into what you just uh, uh, discussed, uh, you know, the, the, that particular poll, which was sort of about the Johnson Amendment, I mean, didn't use that particular language for very understandable reasons, given that most people don't know what the Johnson Amendment is, they kind of explain what the rule was, and uh, they didn't go into into full detail uh, about what it was. Doesn't mean that uh, you know, there's there's more data that shows that people uh, are not in favor of, of these kind of political involvement by churches. Uh, there's a long line of political science research, some of which you had, you shared with me that we will include in the links of the of the show uh, uh, about you know some public opinion research on, on how Americans do not want and do not like. That includes clergy, uh, a survey of clergy that they don't really want uh, their you know the, their churches to be used as a space for for political action. That people generally don't listen, don't hear that, and that for the most part, uh, people, including uh, a demographic that we care much about, the you know Latinos, which many people consider that you know are particularly religious, and this is one of the one of the goals of the of these podcast is kind of like first that myth, uh, you know, there has been a strong uh, anti-church state or pro-church state separation among Latinos for many years that have been captured uh, by surveys. And this is this, this, not even here. It's just here. Uh, I was just, before we started uh, recording, look at the uh, 2014 Pew survey of religion in Latin America. And 
in most countries uh, in which they did the survey, which I believe were 14, uh, most a majority on most of those countries, uh, people believe or, or think that religion should be kept separate from government policy. So there has been, and only actually in two countries, there's a majority of people, uh, sorry, in four countries, uh, a majority of people believe that there should be, uh, that government policies should promote religious values and beliefs. Uh, so there is certainly a secular stream or a streak, uh, not just in, in, in the United States, but certainly you know, also in Latin America that extends to Latinos. Uh, and and it is our it's imperative for us to actually defend that. And we have you know secular organizations have been at the at the forefront of this battle, uh or this potential battle uh to preserve the Johnson Amendment, uh, particularly the Americans United and the Freedom from Religion Foundation. So I want us to kind of go, I want us to go back to a topic that we briefly mentioned before. We specifically mentioned the pulpit freedom movement. And the pulpit freedom movement is a partisan group that seeks, they're funded by the Alliance Defending Freedom. And they are a group of individuals who want to, in their words, free up the freedom of, they want to revive the freedom of pastors to talk politics. Their website is one of the websites that we're going to be including in the description of the episode. And I, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about them because they are the primary group that perpetuates a series of very dangerous myths about the state of what they probably view as censorship of the pulpit. On their website, they have a very misleading timeline, which is hilarious looking. And it starts off in the year 1700 and goes all the way to 2017. A good chunk of it, the section after the American Revolution in, 17, in the late 1770s and going all the way up to 1954 with the Johnson Amendment, says America's church pulpits are free. And then from 1954 to 2008, it says the IRS controls the pulpits. This does not mean what they want you to think. And it goes back to what we've been talking about this entire episode. They use the exact wording that today the IRS can use the Johnson Amendment to tell pastors what they can and cannot preach. That's absolutely not true. As we've been talking about this entire time, but it's something that I really, really want to illustrate, there is a sense of persecution among certain groups of evangelicals a very small group of evangelicals that has a very loud voice that up until this election wasn't really legitimized. Now, don't get any wrong ideas if you're listening to this later on. There have been, there have been politicians against the IRS and the Johnson Amendment for years. This is not a new thing. Donald Trump wasn't the first politician to talk about it, but he was one of the first politicians to promise it to evangelicals, especially on a national level. 
And it's very important that we understand that Donald Trump probably wasn't kidding when he said he intends to destroy the Johnson Amendment. I have written about this topic before, and people have told me that they thought that he was kidding. And at the time, even after the, even after the election was over, no one was sure how serious he was. But then at one of the prayer breakfasts, I think there's only been one, he brought it up again. And he started talking about how he intends to bring freedom back to the pastors as if it's been taken away. And it absolutely hasn't. Yes, this can arguably be seen to be restricting of freedom. And I can actually kind of understand where certain politically inclined pastors are coming from when they say this infringes on their freedom. But this relates to a perk. Like this, and what I mean when I say that is that churches do not have to be tax-exempt. It's something that's given to them. It's a benefit. And part of the reason most churches get to keep that benefit is that they operate within the rules that society has given them. And these rules are decades old. I know that for a lot of people, especially people my age, Donald Trump talking about the Johnson Amendment, especially the people who aren't politically inclined, was probably one of the first times they got any conception of the Johnson Amendment, and they began to understand what it meant. But we cannot be quiet on this issue, because this would severely change how at least some churches operate if we allow Donald Trump to move freely and to, in his words, destroy it. And there is a bill in the House of Representatives right now that was introduced in January of this year by a member of the House of Representatives from North Carolina, a member of the Freedom Caucus, if I remember correctly, which intends to basically, which intends to literally repeal the Johnson Amendment. And it's a very short bill. I'll be including it in the description of this so that way people can see it themselves. It hasn't moved anywhere, but it should be concerning to anyone who's interested in politics and secularism and in the role religion plays in elections and campaigns and in politics in this country. These are things that we need to know about, and we can't allow ourselves to be afraid of these things just because we hear certain hyperbolic rhetoric. Now that you mention uh, the uh, the bill that was introduced, uh, I actually think Walter Jones is not now a member of the Freedom Caucus. Apparently, they're too liberal for him. Uh, he was oh, man. at point one <laughs> part of him. Uh, but, but I, I was reading an article in, in, about the uh, Trump Care uh, debacle, and it seems that he is not a member anymore, uh, and not because he they, they you know they are not basically because they're not hardcore enough. Uh, but joking aside. Uh, you know, one of the larger questions of, of these issues uh, or, or larger problems with these issues is, is something that you, you've you mentioned very well, which is uh, this is a perk, right, in, in terms of it, it's an agreement with between churches and the state in which, uh, you know, there's, there's no need uh, or there's 
you know, there's no natural law that says that churches should be tax-exempt. Uh, and so the, the, the price of, you know, that society sees you as something, as an institution that deserves tax-exempt status because it provides something of value to society uh, larger than, you know, basically any tax revenue that you could bring. It's, it's basically that, you know, you cannot endorse candidates. And the very clear reason for that is that if you get that expanded status and you can endorse or oppose candidate as if you were, uh, uh, you know, what, what we call a C4 organization, which is a political political organization, uh, you're basically luxury money uh, and basically contributing to a church, uh, getting a tax exemption. So this is like, you know, large, like, wealthy uh, political donors and people uh, who actually give enough money to get that, those kind of, uh, of tax breaks uh, for contributing to charitable organizations. So basically, you can contribute money to a church, and that church can give that money to politicians. You're basically laundering money for political contributions in, in a very legal way. So it's not really... Uh, an illegal money laundering scheme, if that were the case. Uh, so, and, and this is a, so. This is why what you said is is very important. I would say I'm not sure how. You know how how much support there is right now, in this, uh, particularly because this was uh, submitted by Representative Jones. I'm not sure how. Uh, he's probably now in uh, Speaker Ryan's stockhouse, so I'm not sure how much these may advance. Uh, but you know, we we still have to take it seriously, just because, uh, as we have noticed in a pattern, in which, uh, as as you mentioned before with your previous blog post about this, in which people didn't believe you that you know, I mean, the now President Trump is not talking necessarily seriously. That he's actually very serious about what he about what he says. He may not be very coherent about what he says, but he's certainly very serious, uh, and and we have to take him at his word uh, for what it's worth. Uh, and right now there is a so so from politically speaking, in one way that I don't think Paul Ryan has has the will of being nice to these particular members of the House in his own party. On the other hand, uh, this may be a way in which President Trump can keep a major part of his constituency happy. Uh, so we cannot dismiss this as something that may, you know, may not pass. If you enjoy our podcast, feel free to like it, share it, and like our page on Facebook. We enjoy your support, and we appreciate that we're able to create content for you that informs you, entertains you, and hopefully makes you want to share it with other people. Thank you very much.